So before the uh, news, we played some of Obama's um, speech during his town hall yesterday. I found it surprisingly relaxed. I was expecting that presidential tone. And I think Obama's an incredibly wise man who uh, reads the room well. I I don't think he wanted to upset any uh, Trump supporters. I think what he wanted to do was bring everybody together just to get some perspective on um, what someone who is far more educated in uh, this this field um, would have to say about it. We're welcoming um, a dean of the College of Art and Science at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul and a professor of African-American history to the show. Here is Professor Uhuru Williams. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Listen, I love listening to Obama speak. I think he is an incredibly sharp man who is incredibly thoughtful, and I miss him terribly just because I, I really found him an inspirational figure. Um, his his talk last night was optimistic. It came from an optimistic point of view on how this is an opportunity for America to turn itself around, to do the right thing. Do you share that perspective? I do. I, you know, what I thought was interesting about Obama as president is he was uh, masterful at articulating hope. And yesterday was a prime example of what I think so many Americans miss, so many worldwide miss about his presence in the White House. It was calming in the sense that it was a clear, rational assessment of the problem, and yet affirming in that it didn't run from the fact that there's an issue here and suggested ways that we could address it. Yeah, I found instead of, you know, giving the nation a talking to, what he did was he um, spoke to the nation in a kind of a, uh, it sounded like a a fatherly figure way, but without, you know, there was no um, condescending tone. It was sort of, it was very uh, much uh, like a chat with your mentor. It it very much so, almost like reminiscent of FDR's fireside chat without the executive office of the president behind it. It was a um, civil sermon. And I think, again, delivered with a clarity and a warmth that even came through, um, you know, with him being virtual uh, in that way. Uh, so, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think, again, this is just classic Obama, I think, what so many people miss about um, his ability to project empathy, which is desperately needed right now. And it was good to have that because we haven't had um, executive leadership from the White House, you know, articulating any of these values or trying to reach out in that way. Uh, to, to people on both sides. I think Obama was critical and yet generous to law enforcement, critical and yet affirming of young people and, and the anger and frustration that some people are feeling in the streets and what it's led to, and empathetic over the death of George uh, Floyd and making the case that that type of police brutality has to stop. And that's really what people needed to hear. How strategic do you think that this this speech was? I, I mean, I read it as he didn't want to undermine Trump. That's why he didn't take on that presidential tone that we've heard before. But at the same time, when he said to protesters, you know, this is neither it's it's not a case of either you vote or you protest. It's not an either or. It's a you vote and you protest. It's time to keep it up. Um, that to me was a direct thumbing uh, his, you know, the nose at, at Trump there. Yeah, I thought this was, uh, again, um, very uh, partly masterful, partly strategic. I think that what Obama didn't want to do was to provoke President Trump or President Trump supporters to dismiss the substance of the message, which is really what he wanted the emphasis to be on. 
And so by being generous in that way, by framing it in the way that he did, he didn't invite what most of us have come to expect, the kind of inevitable attack from the president um, who doesn't like to be embarrassed or undermined in that way. So I think it was strategic in that sense. It was masterful, though, in the sense that Obama was able to touch on um, some pretty relevant issues and to highlight some organizations like Color of Change that are doing that work um, to give voice to the frustration of young people who have been in the streets demonstrating about this um, since 2014, to put this in a broader historical context, which, again, I think was just masterful. So, you know, classic Obama, but I think also strategically meant to circumvent any um, effort by anyone after the fact to simply make this a question of partisanship um, if he had come out and just critiqued uh, the administration for its response, or if he'd come out too soon or much sooner and then be then seen as trying to usurp that presidential voice. Speaking of presidential voices, um, we've heard that uh, Trump is now backing off the whole military talk. Do you think that has anything to do with what happened last night uh, in that town hall with Obama? I think um, that was part of it. I also think that the severe rebuke that he received from, although he wouldn't uh, acknowledge it, um, his senior leader, military leadership, uh, the Department of Defense, and the backlash from the governor also played a role in that. Uh, you know, the, the president's misunderstanding of history, which is probably generous, at times puts him in situations like this where um, he writes checks that you know, clearly he can't cash because they would be unconstitutional. And that was an example of that. I think it was interesting because, again, you had um, such a clear voice on the part of the governors in the state that, uh, governors across the state, that what he was suggest- suggesting wasn't allowable. But then you also had people within his administration, and we all know uh, the president doesn't like to brook dissent within his ranks. So that was, um, I think, uh, quite significant to have a uh, former senior member of his staff and then a sitting senior member of his staff come out in that way and and talk about that being the wrong move and being um, ultimately divisive. Violence seemed to be subsiding as far as the uh, uh, violence in the protests around America last night. How how were things in Minnesota and how much of um, a role do you think uh, Obama's uh, talk played into how things went across the nation last night? I I think the violence was ramping down. So the high point really was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of last week. And you saw a discernible um, turn in the protest on Monday, Tuesday. So I don't think that Obama's speech had much to do with there being relative calm. I think that it was a combination of things. Uh, the fact that you had the announcement of additional charges against the other three officers involved in the death of George Floyd being one. Uh, the fact that you um, literally have the Floyd family, the, the upcoming memorial in the Floyd uh, family, you know, really pleading for people to be peaceful and articulating very clearly that um, arson and looting is not what George Floyd wanted. Having organizations like Black Lives Matter and others come out and say, you know, this is supposed to be about nonviolent protests. Sure, defy the curfew, but do so in a way that doesn't um, demean the ultimate goals and uh, of this of this movement. And then, of course, Obama's speech on top of that. So I think it was a confluence of all those things that helped to contribute um, to the relative calm. And I think some sense of, of uh, you know, satisfaction on the part of those who stayed in the street that they were heard. 
uh, yesterday. One of the things that uh, that struck me and stuck with me uh, through Obama's speech is is that he pointed out that um, this feels different than the 60s. Uh, the, these protests uh, and just the, the climate of change and what people are asking for now feels very different, although he was young in the 60s when um, protests were going on. And he says that it's because of the cross-section of people that were out on the streets. Do you, as a professor of American African-American history um, and, and somebody who lives in Minnesota, do you feel that this is a turning point in American history? I become guarded in using that language, although I would agree with the president that this feels different. Uh, I think it feels different primarily because this is the first time that we're seeing, you know, I think in, in the same way that Me Too has been a turning point, uh, people showing up on the front lines of protests who you wouldn't expect to see, corporations taking responsibility, Black Lives Matter uh, becoming the mantra that people aren't afraid to utter. It reminds me in a very uh, distinct way of President Lyndon Johnson using the language, the words, we shall overcome after the um, uh, Selma campaign, which was a significant moment because the government, even though the Kennedy administration had been sympathetic to have the president of the United States place the government, place himself, uh, align himself with the movement was significant. We're certainly not getting that at the level of the White House, but I think every place else, if you look at the, um, in New York, the language of Governor Cuomo, if you look at the local leaders here in Minnesota, so uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, the uh, mayor of St. Paul, uh, Melvin Carter, it's clear that the goals of this movement are resonating with people on a much greater way and on a much higher level. And I think that's why people are so hopeful that there'll be, it'll be very difficult to go back from this moment without people recognizing the significance. I would also say that I also think it's the fact that this is coming in the midst of COVID-19, coming in the midst mm-hmm. of historic unemployment. So that so many of the issues that people would be want not to be able to identify with, with the African-American community, have suddenly become very real for them. So this isn't just about police brutality. This is about racial disparities um, in a number of areas. And maybe for the first time, the nation, you know, Americans large being in a position to understand why they're so devastating to communities of color. I feel like there's a human need to try and, and relate, especially if you empathize and can see that there's something wrong going on. And I, I've, I earlier on in the show, I, I mentioned someone lost their position here because they tried to equate being bullied as a kid wearing glasses to racism. Obviously, just you can't. Uh, And he was a white man uh, of privilege. And so now he has had to step down, resign from his job. Um, How important is it to keep everyone involved in the conversation and the call for change, no matter what color they are? And, And how do you avoid people trying to feel the need to relate. I don't think you need to relate. I think you need to understand that change has to happen. But how how do you uh, not alienate people from this important call for change in conversation? It's such an important question. I think, you know, one of the things that disappoints me about our, our present, our contemporary moment is cancel culture. And we have to create space. I think South Africa did this very well for truth and reconciliation. A truth means that we've got to let people know that it's important that everybody go on this journey, but we have to 
create an environment in which people can make those kind of mistakes so they can be educated. Part of this process is, yes, of course, uh, those with privilege listening. But then you, we can't throw people away because we have to build a big enough tent based on our common shared understanding of where these problems come from historically, how they're ultimately detrimental to our um, growth and development of our, our larger society and culture. What in inevitably happens when we kind of cancel people and banish them um, is that, you know, there's the ill will and resentment that builds up in those people who have been thus banished, but then that lost opportunity for those people to witness and actually offer a powerful testimony about what they didn't know and how that process of education uh, mm -hmm. brought them to a greater realization of what's needed. I, I really believe right now that's what we need. I've been very encouraged by seeing the rainbow coalition of people on the street and hearing people at least um, signal that they understand that this is much bigger than just going out and protesting. There's a lot of, of work that needs to be done, but appreciating that, that work's going to require all of us to be uncomfortable and unsettled. I mean, at the same time, we need everybody because if we're going to have that deeper societal structural change, but we can't afford to have pockets of resistance that um, then don't see the wider point of why this is necessary. This is about, um, and I don't want to simplify it, but I, what I'm hearing is that it's about educating people who think that they're educated about what is a reality for a lot of Americans. And then uh, instead of uh, instead of dividing, coming together and realizing that we can all be now coming from a similar point of education. I think you articulated that very well. It's, it's you know, the, the oversimplification of it would be, you know, looking at Rodney King's plea to Americans in, in 1992 after the riots kicked off, can't we all just get along? It's not about just getting along. It's about understanding. And understanding means, you know, undertaking some work, uh, listening, reading, sharing, uh, making mistakes, being uncomfortable, and then creating a space for people to come together after we've done that work to reimagine what our communities could be if we were not colorblind, because that's not the goal. Um, it's not, not that we're ever going to get to that, that stage, but where we're appreciative of the fact of how disparities, prejudice, discrimination hurt communities. And also recognize, and this is one of the reasons I've been um, incredibly encouraged by this moment. Uh, I did Australian news yesterday, um, and this is a global phenomenon. So you can oh, talk yeah. about the treatment of indigenous people and um, police brutality and racism. That's why we're seeing, you know, protests in Sydney and protests in Paris and protests in, in London. Uh, I think across the globe this is resonating, and you've got people who are saying, you know, never again for anyone. This has to stop. But, again, that requires all of us to listen. African Americans in the United States, we know what this problem looks like um, intimately. I don't know what the struggles are of Aboriginal people or Indigenous people in Australia. They may be similar, but I need to listen and understand. I need to understand the, the plight of Muslims and the discriminatory discrimination that they face. Uh, it's in that process that we all become better neighbors, better citizens, better human beings. Nice to know that you're our neighbor, Yuhuru. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You as well. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this.